0: Hi, I'm Checo Varese, I'm the cinematographer of Dope Sick, and this is The Go Creative Show.
1: Hello and welcome to The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Checo Varese, ASC, the director of photography of Dope Sick. Checo, thank you so much for coming back on the show.
0: Uh, my pleasure, it feels like being home again.
1: I love that. Well, we are very excited to talk to you. I loved Dope Sick. I watched every single episode, fell in love with it, obsessed with it. It looks great, great performances. There's so much to talk about. But before we get there, very quickly want to mention our sponsor, Filmmakers Academy. Master your craft at FilmmakersAcademy.com. And of course, encourage you all to follow us on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, all things go creative show at gocreativeshow.com. So Checo, you're back. I think we had you on for we had you on for It, Chapter Two. Oh, and then um them we them. had you on for as well. Now, for those of you guys that don't know, Dope Sick is a TV series that sort of chronicles um it talks about the opioid addiction epidemic. It talks about big pharma's role, particularly Purdue Pharma's role in it. And you know, it just chronicles like Basically everything—it's it, taking from the side of just regular people that got caught up in opioid addiction, all the way to you know the powers that be in in uh, Purdue Pharma and the police and you know FBI that are working to uh, crack down on this whole thing. And it 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 comes from so many different angles, and it also takes place across a bunch of different timeframes. I think you're you're constantly bouncing back back and forth. In time, not by not by too much, but there is you know a good ten year span or something, right?
0: There is enough for 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 making clear that there is a time pass and and, and forgetting that iPhones are very new. You know, <laughs> iPhones are eleven years old, so nobody had an iPhone. You know, it's yeah. like Everybody dialed a phone. You know, uh, it starts basically starts if I recall correctly. It starts in 93 and expands all the way to 2006. So it's a 20-year, 15-year, 20-year expand. Um, and <clears throat> as you say, it, it touches the tragedy of the opioid epidemic um, from the point of view of this two, uh, I call it three circles. You know, they're like circles that that have a center in the middle. Imagine the, the Olympic circles that have three circles in a center in the middle. And the big center, it's, uh, Oxycotin or the opioid pills. Um, one, one circle is the victims. One circle is the, the civil servants, you know, and by civil servants, I go from the prosecutors to the DEA agents that were trying to call it a, a, a cartel, you know, because the DEA is not supposed to, to investigate other than cartels dealing with drugs. And then this one agent, female agent, portrayed by brilliantly by Rosario Dawson, um, argued that it it is a cartel. You know, if you're pushing drugs, if you're convincing people to use them, if you're making it accessible to them and people are victims of it, then it becomes a cartel. Um, And then the third circle is... Sort of the, the 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 rich people that run Purdue Pharma, which in this case it's 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 portrayed as Purdue Pharma, but it could be anybody. It could be the tobacco companies. It could be the oil companies. It could be anybody that is greedy enough that doesn't care about the consequences of something. You know, um, I think it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, it 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 goes well beyond the opioid epidemic, and just to tell a story about greed. And I think that it it really does whether or not the opioid epidemic um, you know impacted your life personally or your family's life personally. There's there's still a lot that you can get out of the story of greed destroying people. And um, I think the the show does quite a bit to really talk about that. Um, in Dopesick, there is something in the color palette though that I want to start our conversation with because I feel like over the course of the series our color gets a little greener, a little sicker. It's like as the town gets sicker, as the people get worse, there is a tonal change in the color. So I'd like to talk about the the visual approach that you created for this series, and particular, the color tone. We'll start there.
0: The series was created, written and in, in, in babysit and pampered throughout it by Danny Strong. He wrote... Most of it, if not all of them, um, he was there in every setup, um, early on in the conversations with Barry Levinson, the director that directed episode one and two, um, they both sort of agreed with me on, on this color palette that starts in the three circles that I was telling you, um, the circle of the civil servants, it's a more sort of stark and subdued, uh, and sort of cold, sort of efficient, not cold, but efficient tone, you know, mm. uh, the miners, uh, or the victims start in, uh, in winter we were lucky enough to have a very heavy snow when we were shooting. So it helped this sort of blue, green, uh, palette and, uh, and the Purdue Pharma, it's sort of to quote movies loosely and not necessarily, uh, exactly. It's sort of like the, the, the informant is, uh, the, the movie about the tobacco, the informant, um, yeah. it's, it's sort of the, the civil servant's tone. Um, the deer hunter, it's sort of the victim's tone, not, not the Vietnam part, but sort of the, 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 the foundry part. And then uh, a version of Eyes Wide Shot without the sexy dresses. It's the version of of the Purdue Pharma. With the help of my brilliant uh, DIT gaffer and key grip and my crew, but the DIT especially, we kept that very disciplined tone in the color correction. And then at the end, um, Stefan Sonnenfeld, the colorist, which is a genius, um, Uh, we sat down and sort of start at the beginning and finish at the end, valid redundance and, and, and created an arc, you know, of sickness, Mm. happiness, sadness, uh, tragedy through the color. I do believe that color translates into emotions. You know, if, if you close your eyes, you think as a, a sunset, it's, it's a nice place to be at the beach, you know, and it is warm and orange, but also, Warm and orange is a fire in the forest that kills you. You know, so color is very—it's debatable that colors transmit things, but generally, color attached to a scene or attached to an event will make you feel something.
1: Yeah, in the same way that music would, or really uh, anything would. Exactly. I mean, you're I think you know people always associated color in art department. In wardrobe before people started leaning heavily on color correction in post. But there was always this idea that the color is what's going to influence the mood of the film uh, or the mood of the project in some way. It certainly does. And what I found interesting about Dopesick is that, like you said, you have those three storylines, those three rings. All of them together go through a color change. Like, they each do. It's not necessarily a color change between each storyline. All three also changed so you have quite a few looks throughout the project and there must have been some challenge for you to keep them all feeling like part of the same project because you never feel like you're you're leaving it you always feel like you're still watching the same the same uh, the same tv show but there is an evolution in the color
0: there are 280 days in nine months, 290 days in nine months. Therefore there are 280 nights in nine months or something like that. I'm very bad at math. I didn't sleep much on any of those. I have to confess. <laughs> it, it, it was extraordinarily challenging. I was the only cinematographer uh by decision. It was a design Uh in the first four episodes, three, sorry, in the first two episodes and then episode one and two, In five and six, I operated B camera. Um, I was the operator also by decision and by design. Um, there was a lot of work. I had fantastic collaborators, um, but mostly it all began with conversations with Barry and Danny, and, uh, it was extraordinarily challenging to maintain some kind of arc throughout it Um, because as you said, it's nine hours of television, you know, so they're like hundreds of scenes, thousands of shots, Um, but somehow it worked out. It's pure luck actually.
1: Well, is there something about adding more green to a scene or adding like a coolness to a scene that gives you that feeling of becoming sicker over time, which is happening to a lot of the characters in the show?
0: Yeah. Well, you start as a cinematographer, you start by creating an arc, a color palette. And that arc, it's made of little cards in the office attached with, hopefully not with thumbtacks so they don't charge you for ruining the apartment you rented, but like scotch tape. And you start moving them. And every scene or every couple of scenes has a card and the wall looks like some kind of you know, bullpen in a police station with pictures and things, and you start moving them around and you sit out. And if it's early during the day, you have a coffee and it's a little bit later, you have a glass of wine. Sometimes you have a glass of wine early too. That's fine too. I'm not, I'm not attached to a watch. (laughs) Uh, But you start looking at it as a whole. Uh, You start looking at it as a one painting or as a one experience, because at the end of the day, whether they're nine hours or one hour or two hours, it's a whole. So once you decide that, then you take all the cards, you know, and you stack them in order, and then you somehow create a document. I do that, not necessarily everybody does, but I do that. And then you go into a a, a set and you say, okay, all the lights here should be, LED, where we can change the color a little bit and get a green cast through like the overheads and a little warmer cast from the, you know, the, the side lamp and let's dim it down a little more. So you get an orange, but at the same time you get this. So you start by embedding it in the film or in the digital negative, however you want to call it. Um, once that's done, then it's very simple to create a color correction that embraces that path you created. Um,
1: so you're n- doing a lot of it practically on set.
0: As much as not- you, as much as you can, as much as yeah. you can, because the truth is, at the end, truly, you can do whatever you want. I could make you look pink right now just with my iPhone, you know, yeah. but it will be an overall pink. Mm -hmm. the whole image will be being not the wall behind you, which by the way is very beautiful. Um, not the (laughs) wall behind you that it's orange, but it will be everything Uh, you can select. And then it's very expensive and visual effects, but there is nothing like deciding something and making sure it works, you know? And once you do that, then the rest is making it better. You know, when, when, when Stefan Sonnenfeld, the color is my friend, Brilliant colors grabbed it. He started pushing the contrast, started pushing the color. But at the end, it's the same as the director's cut, it's just much better. It's like the director's cut from one to 10 is at three, and he made it at 10. Yeah, but it's not like the director cut was minus five and he fixed it, he just made it better. Yeah, and, the, and there's some sometimes you can't do anything because it's you know, it's a sunny day and everybody's supposed to be depressed. So you start playing with color contrast as opposed to color color. And then you, you touch the color in post. But when it comes to sets and, and, and builds and, and even locations, I try to, <clears throat> I try to imprint as much emotion as I can in the quality of the light and, and everything else. And the other thing that I think it's, Phenomenal in this show. It's, um, is a fifth or sixth show I do with a fantastic operator, uh, Joseph Arena. And with Joseph, we created a camera move and a framing that it's very particular to this show. You know, you, you have basically talking heads, you have people sitting down and talking, how good is OxyContin? How bad is OxyContin? Oh my God, I'm dying of OxyContin. Oh my God, I'm getting a lot of money of OxyContin. So it's just, so you have to create a language that the audience can relate to without repeat yourself, but at the same time making it look like the same show. So that that i think those are the two crucial things that make dope sick uh, a, I hope uh, a good experience for the audience but I'm, in my personal terms a very mature and beautiful show that i'm very proud of
1: what is the camera movement you're talking about that you said you had you developed a unique move for the show well
0: <clears throat> there you can skin a cat in yeah. a thousand different ways. And hopefully the cut doesn't run away. Most of the time the cut runs away and you don't finish. Um, in DOPSIC, the decision was to have this fluid camera move that that started in a wider and ended up in a close-up, but it didn't. Cut to 17 different close up of other people with long lenses. Most of the show is done with one or two cameras and the second camera is an occasional close up that you can grab while you light for the master. Um, Barry Levinson imprinted this way of shooting it, which was, you know, he he would do a five people on a table and we will do a beautiful sort of either dolly or Steadicam or whatever, move around the dialogue in a way that will finish in the close-up of Richard Sassler that had the last line. And there was an answer, you know, to the last line from another character. And Barry would say, yeah, yeah, yeah let's do a close-up of that, but we will never use it. And sure enough, he didn't use it in Danny Strong that was supervising or overseeing the editorial part, kept this sort of very non-cutty sense in some scenes. Obviously, when the DA attacks the the dealers, then there is like an action scene, you know, with a hundred cuts. But most of it was very elegantly designed in single shots. Most, Most of it.
1: Yep. No, Uh I definitely I I definitely recognize that as a viewer of the show, you do see that there's an elegance to the movement. And I think it does lead to it. It it helps sort of ground the the talent a little bit in there in the characters, I think. Um, I want to talk about the camera package that you use, because I know that this show is filled with Sony cameras. There's Venises on there, FX threes. You were using RXOs as crash cam. So let's talk about the camera packages because I'm really interested in what you what you used and you know how you made that decision.
0: This would be that was my fourth show with the Sony Venice, and um, I'm agnostic when it comes to camera. I don't own equipment. I I always felt that. There's some kind Not of- Not even si-
1: lenses? You don't even have, a lot, of, a lot of DPs may have, they'll have like their own.
0: Nope. Look at you. Good. Nope. F- that's, nope. that's great. Because I had, and this is a side note, I had a set of fantastic Zooms, engineer Zooms, and I bought the three of them. That's 15 years ago. And I'm South American and Italian. So by definition, I don't like to work. You know, <laughs> that it comes on the DNA, though I work. I understand. I work all the time, but I don't like to work. I like go fishing, cooking, chatting with you, having a glass of wine. So when I decide to go fishing, cooking or having a glass of wine with you, I take the car out of the garage and I look to my left and there are three boxes of lenses that are not working. So not only I'm not working, but those things that are costing me whatever hundreds dollars a month of, of, of mortgage or whatever, they're not working. So I feel guilty. So I started working for the lenses and I decided, but that's idiotic. I don't have to work for those things. Those are non-animated. So anyway, on a side note, I don't own equipment. Um, It's not a good thing or a bad thing. I just am agnostic because if a good camera comes out next year, better than the camera I'm using this year, I want to use that camera. So what am I going to do with my three Venices that I have sitting in a shelf somewhere? Same with lenses. I did each chapter two with one set of lenses that was perfect, was brilliant. And they are delicious for that movie. And then I did them with another set of lenses that are perfect and delicious for that movie. And then I did um, Dope Sick with the Zeiss Supremes and with the Sony Venice at 6K which means large format so we were able to give this very very soft background and very yeah. shallow depth of field which was brilliant for this i i just finished another show i haven't i have used the venice because i think it's the best camera available right now mind you i love all the other manufacturers and all the cameras are great for the show i was doing I use another set of lenses because that was the particular look I needed for that one show. So, yes, we had three Sony Venices two and a half, the, the half Sony Venice was the one that goes to the Steadicam, to the Technocrane, whatever. So it's an additional body. Mind you also, Richmond, though it's very close to Washington DC, that is the capital of the universe. Uh, uh, getting equipment to Richmond is not easy it either comes from New York or Atlanta and with COVID, you know, it was quite a nightmare. Um, so we had three cameras, then Sony wanted me to try the new FX3, which is this little sort of looking like your regular still camera. Yeah. Um, it's the same sensor, the same family of sensors. Um, if you shoot in raw, you shoot at 4k. And I used it with traditional out of focus video photography lenses. So, no no focus puller, no nothing. I see, yeah. So, it was this tiny little thing that we could run around and crash into the pharmacy, following the the, 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 the kid that steals it. And passed from one operator to the next one. I did one whole scene in a car, a dialogue scene, a very intense dialogue. One of the kids is dying. Oh, my God, what are we going to do with him? And I literally sat in the front in the passenger and shot the other two guys at the driver. I drove and I grabbed with the other hand the camera and I shot them like that. And then I sat in the back. And so in 20 minutes, we shot a two and a half pages scene of a car driving at night. You know, it yeah. would have been impossible. It has an amazing quality. And at the same time, it has this feeling that you are in there with the characters. And then we did use the little tiny camera as a crash camera a couple of times. And another time... The RXO 2, right? Yeah, the, right? the RXO 2. Then it also has Zeiss lenses. And so it, it was a, quite a fantastic experiment. And... Um, I, I- it's I've great. got a
1: question about that FX3 though. Are were you pairing like E-mount lenses with that, or were you yes, using adapters? Okay, so all right, so you still had some control over those lenses. Uh, I you, you, I had,
0: I yes. had control, not my focus puller because, okay, knowing my kids, my focus puller I said, oh no, no no no, we need to put a PL mount and a remote focus, and I said, by the time yeah. I put a PL mount a remote focus the rods and the things, it becomes a Venice. Yeah, so I may as well. Have a Venice. I want a tiny little camera that I can control and I don't need any of you guys and go and grab a coffee, you know. And yeah. that's exactly what we got. And it was amazing. And the now, RX. Sorry.
1: No, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: And the RXO, we needed a couple of times, like a crash or an accident or something. And um, we tried it and it was fantastic. And for the 45 frames you're going to use it, it's great, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you were using those FX3s, were they like B and C cams to your A cam Venice, or were they entire scenes of only FX3 for whatever reason?
0: We, okay. I wouldn't do a master on the Sony and a close-up on the FX3. Yeah. But I would do a master on the Sony and then the fight starts and you do the rest of the fight with the FX3. Okay. Um, though I challenge anyone to recognize the FX3 from the Sony Venice in the final product when you watch it on a screen of any yeah. size. Um, but it's not the same depth. It gets more than the technicalities of actually the sensor and the thing and the thing and the thing. It gets more to the lenses because the Sony would have a full frame Zeiss lens in that... Dark- Situation, and the FX three would have a size E mount lens that will yep. react differently to the depth of field. Yeah, so you will recognize a slight difference.
1: It's probably uh, wider too. Wider focal lengths in the FX three, right? Exactly, or or not, or
0: not. I some of the scenes we shot with the seventy. You know, you oh, just get a okay. little zoom, and, I would say it's like. The difference between a dolly and handheld, there is a difference. Yes. So it's that, you know, I don't know if I, if I would shoot a whole movie with the FX3, because it's a different tool. You know, you have the Sony Venice or, or you have the Alexa. So uh, to, to summarize it's imagine you're a painter and you have five brushes, you know, every brush has. A specific reason to exist, Um, or even better, imagine you're a cook. You know you have olive oil, and then you have truffle oil, and then you have a little bit of like hot pepper oil. You're not gonna fry on the hot pepper oil. You're just gonna add a drop here and a drop there, and the truffle is at the end when you serve the pasta. So that's what the FX3 to the Venice is. It's the truffle oil.
1: Yeah. And I think that makes sense. I mean, every camera kind of has its place, but it's interesting to see that you threw in and felt confident enough to throw in what is essentially kind of like a DSLR camera um, to, you know, the Sony Venice. I think that that's, that's pretty cool. And I'm glad to hear that it was, you know, I'm glad that you thought it was successful as a viewer. It certainly was, but it's nice to hear that you thought it was successful as well. Extraordinarily successful in the, so
0: now my traditional package, it's, an A and a B, Sony Venice, an FX3 or two, depending if you're far away and crashes and breaks, you need two, but like one FX3 and the little cousin, you know, that I have it in my pocket, you know, literally we rigged it with a magnet, with like a, a magnet. So we rigged it with a magnet. So that's, that's it. Yeah. You, know, you put it in a car with a magnet, no rigging, no nothing, you know, that's it. So it's, are you, it, it, sorry. No, no, go. It, it opens up the palette in a way that it's so freeing that it's amazing.
1: Yeah. Are you using any filters on your A cam or, or you know, B and C cam for that matter? But are you the type of guy that use a lot of filters? In
0: DopeSick, we use the traditional Polar, uh, a little bit of a softening filter for some of our leading ladies, but very little, like an eighth or something. The, whatever it was, glimmer glass or Hollywood something. I can't remember the name. Yeah, um, we did apply a chocolate filter made by Tiffin. Uh, hmm.
1: Chocolate is—I never heard of that one.
0: Yeah, it's sort of in the vein of in the vein of the sepia or the tobacco filters.
1: Okay. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now.
0: Yeah. But the chocolate filter, what it has is it takes everything and makes it a little warmer and browner. But mm. the trick is if you take the warmth out of it, it affects a lot, the blue and the greens just for opposition in the wheel of colors. You know, if you push towards the green, it, it's less red. If you push towards the red, is less green. So in that case, what happened is When we were in the mining town, we added for most of the exteriors, the chocolate one to all the cameras, including the FX3. Um, And then in the color correction or in the dailies in the DIT, we took the warmth out. So the blues were more vibrant and the greens, whatever greens was left in this town with, with snow were more vibrant, was more vibrant.
1: That's interesting. So you put the filter on to sort of bring up the overall warmth, and then you strip the warmth away. And what was left was sort of this unusual kind of greenish blue tone that you wouldn't be able to really get otherwise. Uh, You
0: probably would in post, like Stefan will sit in front of his Da Vinci and, and two strokes will replicate it. But it also embeds in the negative and in the dailies and in the editorial process a feeling that otherwise you wouldn't because one of the other beautiful things and yet problematic things about the ability to turn everything into any color is that unless your dailies are very close of your final product, then the producer, the studio and whoever, and their grandmother that looks at the director's cut are going to get in love with this look. And then once you go into the color correction, you're going to change the look because you hated it as a DP. But they're going to say, no, no, no. no. Oh my God. I love the way that looked. And you go, Oh my God. That looked horrible because I wasn't able to change the color. So you have to be as, as precise as you can. As a, uh, that's my opinion. A cinematography in the early process. So everybody's in, in communion with the look you know, and then you make it better. And then you add grain or you add a vignette here and there, you make this darker or brighter. But generally speaking, if you were to to look at the director's cut or the studio cut of episode one of Dope Sick, you wouldn't believe it's a different movie. It's the same movie. It, you know, after the color correction is much better, but it it's the same sense. Yeah. Because that, if you, if, in- sorry, if you don't do it, then they get in love with this, with all the respect, CNN-looking footage that you gave them that it's flat and video-ish and etc. and they get in love with that. And then all of a sudden, you want to make The Godfather, and they say, no, 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 it's too dark.
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think one that all of us here can relate to, whether you're working on a a large project like um, Dope Sick or just your own, even small corporate projects. People fall in love with what they are seeing either on set or in the first draft. Like how important is it when you, and this isn't a, a problem you have to deal with, but stuff that we have to do with corporate and commercial work is draft one, like is so important because that is the, that's the first impression and people tend to either hate it or fall in love with it. And then no matter which direction you go, it always looks different. And you're sort of like, (laughs) <laughs> the people that hated it are happy and the people that loved it are unhappy. <laughs> so that first draft is so important.
0: It, it, most of our viewers or you, uh, the viewers probably are younger than I'm going to use a, a, there used to be a thing called the, there is a, the Avid is where you edit, but it used to be yeah. a thing that goes to AVR one, two, three, four, five, which was resolution in the Avid. So depending on how big your memory was, that it used to be the size of a, Closet, you know, now is the size of a, I don't know, an iPhone, but it used to be the size of a closet. If you didn't have that, you needed to lower the resolution. It was AVR one and two and thing. And everyone's, was, everything was solarized and the colors were horrible and everything was jiggery. So you would edit in AVR, whatever. And then they would sit in the projection and they look at it and it's like, Oh, I really like the orange that I saw before and I'm like the orange was a subproduct of a shitty memory you had in your closet <laughs> it's i didn't decide it should be orange it, or oh i love the softness of it i'm like no that wasn't softness it was lack of definition you know so it's extraordinarily important no matter what you do even if you take a picture of your cousin's wedding I mean, go into your computer iPhone and touch a little bit the colors and send it that way because that's the way you as a cinematographer, as a photographer, wants it to be as opposed to, you know, the algorithm that decides how it should look. Yeah.
1: Yeah. filmmakersacademy.com is filled with excellent courses. And one of my favorites is how to be a camera assistant. It's taught by Derek Edwards. And I wanted to bring Derek on for just a moment now to talk to you guys as well. So Derek, first, welcome to the show. And also tell our audience what, yeah, what can our audience expect from your camera assistant course? A lot of
0: great information. I take you through all the tools that I use. I take you through just some of the small things that help me get along on set. You gotta remember, all these tools are just little pieces that are just gonna help you out. I give you a couple of little tips on ideas of where to position yourself when you're pulling focus because now we're not pulling focus off the camera anymore. So we have to pull focus somewhere in the corner in the room and I try to help teach people what I'm seeing when I pull focus to try to nail the shot because we are storytellers, no matter if we are the unseen person in the room.
1: Well, the course is awesome. It's called How to Be a Camera Assistant, and it's available right now on FilmmakersAcademy.com. I want to talk about the way that you portray people that are actively high from opiates on Dope Sick through cinematography how are you portraying those moments and there's quite a few reflected in the show
0: well there was a again there was a lot of there were a lot of conversations about it you know and and you always start by by i'm gonna use a a a, a construction analogy you always start with the sledgehammer you know it's like Oh, let's use out of focus. or let's use the baby lens or let's use swing and tilts. You know, that's the sledgehammer approach or, or yeah. it's a flashback. Oh, let's make it black and white. No, no, no. Hold on a second. That's the sledgehammer approach. Nothing against black and white flashbacks, but so that's the sledgehammer approach. And once you decide that you need something better, you end up with a scalpel because I'm a firm believer that the audience is smarter than all of us because hopefully an audience is made of 200,000 people or a million people or whatever. So a million brains are more sensitive than one. So you have to give them the information so they can absorb it, but you don't have to give it to them, digest it. They, They have to still find it because that's the beauty of it. You know, the subtleties, it's all about subtleties. It's not about sledgehammers, you know, at least in a, in a show like Dope Um, so there was a moment where we started thinking on, as I said, Swing and tails, baby lens, and then we walked away from it because there, there was a need of realism and a need of being in touch with them. Um, we ended up with a little bit more of a active camera, more like a handheld-ish moving camera, longer lenses, so more out of focus in the background or play with focus, or maybe it's a profile, so there is focus in this eye and not in this one, and then it rolls back and forth, random, not randomly, but uh, with no real reason. So there was a... Th- A sense of uneasiness on it. Um, But as I said, we started with a sledgehammer and we ended up with a Swiss army knife. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And I think it's funny because your work on them and even it chapter two at some points was like you took scenes in those shows much further, I think, in the cinematography than you did in Dope Sick. you, You really made Dope Sick extremely grounded. And I mean, no, I went into the show knowing your previous work and was almost expecting a more heavy handed approach in those types of scenes. And it was it was nice. It was honestly kind of refreshing to see you take a more subtle approach to it. Because you don't really see that that often.
0: No, I think, well, first of all, in a month, I'll turn sixty. You know, so, so, so there is a wisdom. What's that have to do with it? Well, there's a wisdom. You become Oh, a wisdom, I see, I see. Yeah, there is a wisdom <laughs> yeah. that comes with age um, <laughs> yeah. or with having it done for 35 years. Uh, yeah. The one thing with DOPSIC was it had to be real. It had, you had to feel you're with them inside their brains. Because in the moment you lose the suspension of disbelief, then all of a sudden Purdue Pharma are nice people because they dress well, they are. I'm talking about cinematography, not performance. You know, that's not my department. Um, But it had to have this very grounded, this very real and and almost personal feeling. Um, And once you start adding layers of either lighting or emotions through lenses and camera moves, I had the feeling that I would take the audience away. I it, I needed them to be with this young 14-year-old girl that sells her attributes for 20 bucks, you know, in a parking lot to buy the next pill. So I could make that very dark and rainy and, and ugly, but that will take that would put filters and layers between the audience and her. And that was a conscious decision to just stay away. I mean, I, I come from documentaries and, and, in and, and news. So to me w- when you want to glorify violence and when I do an action movie, put some slow motion in it and everything looks sexy, but you're making violence sexy. You know, if you want to make an anti-war movie, you would never do slow motion. You know, you, you will make it in real time because that's what happens. And it was the same. A slow motion or an out of focus, somebody uh, being high, it would have been almost glorifying that event. I don't know if it makes sense.
1: It does make sense. That, and I love that analogy of not using slow motion if you want to show something portrayed, it, it not glorifying it. Like that, that, and I think you do do that because you're right. Like that character, I can't remember her name, the young girl. What's her name? her character name. I, I can't yeah, remember. I
0: can't remember The one with but, the, the one with yes. the, yeah. Um,
1: she, like, you kind of want to see, like the girl that you're introduced to at the beginning of the show, you, you want that same girl to be the one going through the hardships because you, you want to feel like it is her. It's not somebody different. That's exactly. what makes you feel for her is that you've seen how low someone can go. And, and I just thought that was done very, very well. Um, Let's talk about lighting for a little bit. Because in Dopesick you've got quite a few sets, quite a few locations, but a lot of them must be like like in corporate video work and in commercial work too. The worst thing in the world is have to shoot in someone's office because you're being given a white wall, it's terrible. Lighting is flat, it's awful. When I'm watching Dopesick I'm thinking, "Oh my god, these guys had to make the whole thing is offices. It's like, there's so many offices in this. It's, it's amazing that you guys were able to, to keep those things looking good. (laughs) So first I want to talk to you about the way you approached it, because you basically were being handed like the worst case scenario where everybody is in a corporate building. (laughs) It's pretty crazy.
0: Well, I, I have to say, The production designer, Neil Spacey, which is a wonderful, wonderful man, um, he designed the offices to the best of his ability to still making them look real and like offices, you know, because it's like, okay, these two guys that are prosecutors in Roanoke, Virginia, they cannot live in a Frank Gehry building, you know, with the walls like that and silver. I mean, they have to live in a... I don't know, eight by eight little office with a brown couch. That's what that's what makes the believability of the show. Um but with with Neil, we talked a lot about making this one-story building what you see that has some skylights. You know, at least you can get some light from a skylight, quote unquote. We were on a stage. Skylight. But like the DA building, the DA building is the DA building. It's a you know a Styrofoam ceiling with a bunch of, you know, whatever fluorescence in there. So the one thing that we tried is, okay, so what is the most interesting movie you can remember? Okay, All the President's Men. 60% of the movie happens in the Washington Post bullpen with... so but they were very smart. They, they lower the camera. So you play with the vanishing point of all this fluorescence. So you take advantage of as much as you can. But at some point, my friend, it just, you cut your veins. I mean, it's like, how many more scenes are we going to do in this beep office? Oh, we have another three episodes and there's at least 30 scenes. And I'm like,
1: Oh God. And you, know, you had so many offices too. It's like you had the DEA, you had the Purdue. Although Purdue, Purdue had at least that, like the, the room where they were kind of having their board meeting. That yeah. was that was a pretty interesting environment. But yeah. even that, you still are faced with environments that would have top light, just flat. Right, that's know, how it works. Light. Yeah, they have no windows and yeah. So it was challenging.
0: It was really challenging. We 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 struggled through at least the prep part because I wanted to make it every scene different. And then sort of one morning I woke up and I said, no, no, this guy is sitting in that desk every day. And that's what is going to happen. You know, and it's all about performance and it's all about a camera move and it's all about reflections and it's all about nuances. Um, The set dressers were amazing and they changed the lamps and they, you know, they, we work on it a lot, but it, um if I cannot shoot an office in a little while, that would be wonderful.
1: <laughs> but what were you doing? Were you just leaning into the overhead light? I mean, there was tons of contrast in there. So you must have been at least cutting well, some we, light somewhere. We,
0: we, we, we basically had control, at least in the offices we built. Then there is a couple of, not a couple, there are several scenes that happen in real offices. So you, the, the first thing you do in one of those offices, you go in and shut off the overheads. You, know, you turn them off and you go and say, oh, it looks better. You know, yeah. Um, we were basically trying to to create contrast and, and, and lighting from the ground as much as we could. Um, in the DEA, for example, we had full control of all all the fluorescents. Those were LED lights. Um, so you would probably. When you wouldn't see them, you just turn off the one on the left and turn off the one on the right. So there was some contrast in the room, and then all of a sudden the operator will pan and you'll see all these fluorescents off. And I'm like, no, no, no. No, no, no. You tilt down. Those are off <laughs> on purpose. Oh, but it's so beautiful you tilt up. Okay. So let me let me turn them on again. You know, so you start building contrast by eliminating lighting. Um But there is a certain point. You just embrace the disaster. You know, that's it. You know, you just embrace it and, and, and and hope for the best and try to create negative feel with flags. There were like an army of grips, army, a small army of grips with flags all over the place. And as soon as we did that rehearsal, there's like, okay, there's black here, black here, black there, black there, black in the ceiling, tape it. I mean, there is a couple of scenes where literally there is a, there is a scene with Peter Siasgaard that he's giving this very, very emotional speech on the phone with someone and a piece of Duvetin goes. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. The tape oh, gave God. up or whatever, you know what I mean? but like, sorry, Peter. And he goes, that's ah, fine. You know? And then we just, the next thing you see is a guy with like a drill and locations having a heart attack. But I was like, okay, but, um, <laughs> it's, 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 <laughs> It's a challenge. It's because if, if you shoot a movie like Brazil, the movie, you design every set, you know, and every set has the lighting that comes through the window and etc. if you, if you shoot a corporate movie, a very good example is Dante Spinozzi, the informant, the movie with Russell Crowe, mm. you know, that is a movie about offices and people talking, you know, and, and he did an amazing, amazing, brilliant job. And I analyzed the movie because How do you make that interesting? You make that interesting by turning everything off and then the guy has only like a little side lamp on.
1: Yeah, it it seems like an incredible challenge, but I mean, you guys certainly overcame it. And and it is the performance, at the end of the day, it is the performances that is going to keep this thing going. But people here, myself and the Go Creative show audience, we're looking at the cinematography, (laughs) that's for sure. Um, I want to talk to you about your most challenging scene. What was the most challenging scene or setup, or you know, something that you know came to you? Like you said, you're going to be 60 coming up. You have some years. You have some wisdom and experience. There must have been something that you learned that you were challenged with on Dope Sick.
0: Every morning, every morning, <laughs> just, learn- getting <laughs> just getting up. Just getting up. No, there. I can think of a hundred scenes, but there was one scene that was particularly. Violent in the, the minor family, um, Caitlin Deaver, her father, her mother, she comes back is in episode five, I believe, or six, uh, directed by Patricia Regan. In the script read, the, the, the dad takes the backpack and drop, finds the pills because she stole, but I'm not going to give up anything, but she stole some jewelry, sold it, so she can buy the pills with that money. She comes back, she runs into the kitchen, the father takes the backpack, takes the pills out, and then there is a big fight. And it's written as a fight. And Patricia, the director, worked with the actors, and that become became one of the most poignant, violent, and yet emotionally driven scenes I've ever shot in my entire life. And that, And Patricia set it up, came back to me and said, there's only one close-up. It's a three minute scene. It's a handheld, it's a Warner. And then I I need an insert of something at some point. That's it. Wow. So they came in, we didn't rehearse. Well, we did rehearse sort of walk through. We had two cameras and uh, they basically came in, started screaming at each other. He grabs the backpack and it's a father that, yet is violent in the fact that he's getting the pills, but it, he does it with such a contained tenderness and contained violence. that it's I remember tearing up at the end of the first take and I was operating one of the cameras and I was literally tearing up because I saw his struggle of like trying to be forceful and at the same time, not to be violent and And it was amazing. And they did, we did it twice. And then we did a couple of shots more like the pills in the drain and the water opening and whatever, the backpack falling in the ground. So there was a place to cut. Um, So you had to light the whole house, small house, but you had to light it in a way that it could be everywhere. So that was challenging. But also the first AD dedicated five hours to that and was finished an hour and a half later, you know, that's it because we're done. You know, yeah. there is nothing else to do, and the scene I think is one of the most beautiful scenes in, not the whole show, but in that episode is very, very emotional.
1: It's a great scene. It's definitely a great. Scene. I think it holds up as one of the one of the more impactful scenes in the whole series for sure. <coughs> it was excellent. Um, a couple of things I wanted to mention before we wrap up. Um, first thing: working with Michael Keaton. I mean, what that must have. I mean, he just seems like such a great. Just a great guy to kind of be around in the first place, but he just seems so dedicated to his craft. And, you know, one of our true talents that, you know, just so few people have the opportunity to really work with him. So you have, uh, for a long period of time, I'd love to just get your thoughts on what it's like working with Michael Keaton.
0: He's one of those actors that comes to set, prepared and ready. He has an opinion, but the opinion has been shared either with the director or the showrunner. It's not an, it's not a public opinion. It's an opinion that has been analyzed and come. Mind you, we're in the midst of the worst, the other worst COVID crisis. So masks, facials, social distancing. So it's impossible to get a read on anyone. No yeah. vaccines at that point. I don't recall there were, but see I probably they were, but I can't remember. So it's like being close to a, an astronaut, you know what I mean? With a thing, you know, so he came in, he brought into the character. He had conversations with Danny, he has conversations with Barry and Patricia and Michael Cuesta and Danny Strong. Um, and then socially it was wonderful. Not, we would find each other in a hotel, in the hotel at night. And, you know, let's have a glass of wine outside in the cold with like 70 parkas. So you're (laughs) not inside. And he would just laugh and chat. And the next morning he will come. So it was amazing. It was, uh, but everyone, I have to say everyone was, I mean, Peter Sasgard, Peter Sasgard is one of those actors that will do three takes and every take will look the same. But if you, if you observe, it has nuances and every nuances make it better. Rosario Dawson, Rosario Dawson, it's extraordinary. Caitlin yep. Deaver, Caitlin is amazing. Uh, both the mom and the dad uh, of Caitlin, whose name is Cape, they're amazing. Everyone was, and I have to also say, we were a crew of a hundred and something, you know, like a large crew. Everyone had a cousin. I'm not from here, so I thank God I didn't. But everyone had a cousin, a brother, a sister, a mother, a wife, a husband, or a, a, a friend that either is dying of OxyContin or has died of OxyContin or will die of OxyContin. Unreal. Unreal. Everyone. Every single one. And it's just like, oh my God. And these are people that are not all from Virginia. I mean, there's people from all over the country. Every single one has a cousin, a brother. Oh, yeah, I remember my roommate. Oh, my, whatever, my best friend in high school. Everybody knows somebody. And that is, so it touches everybody's heart. So I think everybody was committed. And, and, and sure enough, I mean, the Dope Sick is nominated for yeah, whatever the the Emmys or something. and and the best critic award for Caitlin and and for Rosario and for Michael Keaton. I mean, it is it is a very important show.
1: Yeah. does that does that impact the way that you approach the cinematography when you're telling a story that is so relevant to so many people around the world?
0: I don't know if I'm a better cinematographer or not. I think I, I I have the same anxieties when I shoot each chapter two that when I shoot your your next short film that you're gonna call me so I can DP it sure. for you. let's do a full let's do a feature. <laughs> exactly, a feature. <laughs> yeah. I will have the same How anxiety. How dare you? <laughs> exactly. Well, a short like a two hour
1: as opposed to nine. Oh, I see. That's I like that. <laughs> uh,
0: but I don't know. What I know is that. It was so important for so many people that the responsibility was bigger. Um, when you shoot a horror movie, the responsibility is to make somebody scared. When you shoot a comedy, the responsibility is to make somebody laugh. When you shoot something like Dopesick, the responsibility is to make someone think. And that I think has a profound impact on how you approach it. Not more profound than the other ones, but at least more focused. And I think that was the mantra. Let's make it real. Let's make it impactful. Let's make people think about. It. And listen, at the end of the day, it's all about wild greed and capitalism. You know, it's not even greed only. It's wild capitalism. No, oh, you cannot regulate my corporation because we are good people. I mean, what do you mean? You know that poultry industry are heavily regulated because if not, you would die of salmonella. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Pharmaceuticals should be heavily regulated. I mean, there's... chickens, pills,
1: same thing. Yeah. And they're not. I've seen a lot of documentaries about the opi- opioid epidemic, especially in ones that focused even on Purdue Pharma. But for some reason, even in the documentaries, Dope Sick, I think, gives you more information about what actually happened. And it's dramatized, but... There are things that you guys showed in Dope Sick that I'm like, I kept saying to myself, did that really happen? And then you'd go and check it on and you're like, wow, that really like it's even more than documentaries did. I think Dopesick did a great job of showing what actually was going on within Purdue Pharma. Right. It was pretty remarkable what you guys had pulled out. Just when you think that you've seen everything about this, you know, about this story, I think Dopesick brings you a whole different angle. So it's uh, it was informative.
0: Let me tell you, there was an army of researchers behind the scenes. Yeah. There was one moment where the art department printed a, a, a graph of some sorts, whether the, a, a graph that Purdue Pharma was showing. And yes, then, and I then, know exactly what you're talking about. And Danny said, that's not accurate. And the other department says, well, we got it from here and there. That's not accurate. Let's shoot the reverse first and then we'll do. So he ran away, took a picture, sent it to the researchers. And the researchers said, no, it's not accurate. Because all these people at Purdue Pharma are not only alive, they have thousands of lawyers and they're very rich. So if you show something that is not true or not accurate to the comma, they'll sue your life. So it was also extraordinarily well researched.
1: Yeah, it's just a fantastic show, and all of you guys should check it out if you haven't already. It's called Dope Sick. It's Hulu, right? I'm it's on, to remember. Hulu,
0: it's on, on Hulu, but I think now it's also on Disney Plus or something because they're all the same kind of. Yeah, yeah, so
1: you'll find it. Just go. Just go online, search for Dope Sick. You will find it. It's great. The whole series is out, and um, we love talking to you. Check out for you know, all of your work, but your work on Dope Sick was just fantastic. And I'm looking forward to the next time you're on. So what's next for you? What are you working on? Can you tell us? Yes, yes, yes. I just finished the first five episodes
0: of a wonderful series, completely different. Um, This is about a rock and roll band from the 70s, how they got together. They became the greatest band of the 70s and how they, poof, disappeared and nobody knows anything about them. Uh, it's based on a book. The book is called Daisy Jones and the Six. We did it. Uh, great cast, great musicians because they were rehearsing for weeks and weeks and weeks. So they do play the music and sing it. And it was fantastic. And it's a rock and roll, completely different. There's young kids that come to the scene in LA in the seventies, lots of drugs, some sex, not much, uh, or very good taste sex, um, and, uh, lots of music. That's going to be fun. I that just, finished. Awesome. I just finished and now I'm waiting. I'm actually cleaning up a box in the garage that has been two years there trying to figure out what to do with it. So <laughs> it's going to take me a month.
1: Well, enjoy your month off. I'm sure something's going to be coming very, very soon. <laughs>
0: I'm sure. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, check over at Asa. thank you so much for being on Go Creative Show. And already I'm looking forward to you coming back for your next project.
0: Thank you so much. I'm always here and it's lovely. You know, the one thing that is true is there are no good answers. There are only good questions. There you go.
1: There I'll you take go. that. I like that compliment. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on and we'll see you next time. See you soon. All right. I want to thank Checo Verese, ASC, the cinematographer for Dope Sick for coming on the show. We love having Checo on the show. He just is so great on air, and I'd love to know what you guys think, so please let us know in uh, the comments on either our website or YouTube or wherever you're listening to this show. Let us know what you think. I also want to thank Connor Crosby. He is the producer of the show, and you can find him at IgnitionVisuals.com, as well as Dave Siegel from SiegelSound.com who mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. Of course, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and youtube where you can not only hear the show but see the show and see our guests and all things go creative show at gocreativeshow.com of course special thank you to our sponsor filmmakers academy we absolutely love working with those guys they have such great content on their site master your craft at filmmakers academy.com and if you want to follow me i'm there on instagram at ben consoli b-e-n-c-o-n-s-o-l-i Thank you for joining us today. And we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.